you remember like ever running a story where you later got in any trouble for or wish that you perhaps did not publish the story? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to the Mo Show podcast, episode 21. My guest today comes from an illustrious media background. He is the chairman of Al Bilad Media and Publishing Company, managing partner of Quartz Communications, and the director of Abir Medical Group. He's been in the media industry for over 30 years, most notably as the editor in chief at Arab News. Tonight, I'm in the midst of incredible company, as it's an absolute honor for me to introduce media mogul Uncle Khalid Al Ma'ina. Welcome. Thank you. So thank you so much for being on the show, I'm Khalid. It'll be my pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Um, I'm Khalid, I have so much that I can talk to you about, but I want to start with uh, what uh, was your background like growing up and um, where did you, uh, you know, do your, your, your studying back, back when you were a student? Well, uh, I went to school in Pakistan. Our family had uh, business for generations in the subcontinent, my grand uncles and my uncles and my grandfather. And I went to an Irish Catholic school, St. Patrick's, and then college, studied there, and then uh, finished university, me and my cousins, then came to Saudi Arabia, uh, and then afterwards went to the States and did a one-year course mm -hmm. in Washington, and then joined the airline, Saudi Airlines, for some time. Yeah. You mentioned that my father had something to do with that. Yes, your father, uh, a great uh, friend of ours and a guide and a mentor, uh, guided me to the airline. And he said, why don't you come and see the airline? So I went the first day, met him. He poured coffee for me. I was very impressed to see clean, neat offices, uh, people all on time, talking. And I decided that for me, the airline, which was at that time managed by TWA, uh, would be the right place for me. Was it like a joint venture back then, Saudi Airlines and TWA? TWA was supervising uh, Saudi mm -hmm. Airlines and trying to groom up new managers. And your father was one of the first Saudi managers who held a, a position down there. And then we, we joined in as a graduate program. So there were 14 Saudi graduates. Oh, wow. I was one of them. Fantastic. Um, and, and where did your career take you after uh, you know, your, your uh, venture in the airline business? Well, I was always interested in, in the media. Mm -hmm. And I was in the airline. I used to go in the evening uh, to read the news on Radio Jeddah. There was only one radio station in English and one in Arabic. Again, your father used to read along with some other people oh, wow. like the late Mohammed Al-Fawzan and other people and Shu'a Rashid. Yeah. And uh, that's how I started liking it. And then in 75, they had the Arab news came and I used to read the paper. It was a 12 page paper in those days. It was the only source of news. We used to be um, listeners to the radio, the BBC, the Voice of America, Sot al-Arab yeah. from Cairo. Yeah. There were not many areas where we could go in and get our news feed. Mm -hmm. So these were some of the issues that were yeah. relevant to us. W were, were the number of English-speaking Saudis back then uh, very few, would you say? Yes, there uh, were there few. I mean, a lot of people knew English, but people who really were able to converse uh, very well in English were very few. Okay, all right. Um, I'm Khalid, how difficult was it for you to, you know, reach the heights that you ultimately did as editor-in-chief for as long as I can remember. 
Um, was it a very bumpy road um, or did you feel like it was effortless? Well, you'll be surprised. I went, I never worked in a paper. I had never been inside a paper. And the day I went in, I was the editor-in-chief. From day one? From day one. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit of a shock for yeah. me. My mother cried. She didn't want me to go in the newspapers, you know, that how the news is and please don't go and it's not this. But I was just asked by the Hafiz brothers, Hisham and Muhammad Ali Hafiz, to come and see them. And I went down there and they just laid uh, a, a, a piece of paper white and said, please name your salary. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I had never worked in a paper. So I went to visit another Islam, Dr. Saud Islam, who was the editor of the Saudi Gazette. Okay. And I told him that how much, and he guards his salary very religiously. He said, I won't tell you. I said, yeah, but I give me a yardstick, yeah, yeah, yeah. which he never did. So then I just had the figure and they accepted it. And then I was there. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. What are your thoughts on how the industry have changed? I mean, you have seen the world go from paper print um, to, to what we're seeing today. Um, is there a uh, a specific era, or do you prefer uh, a specific era to uh, you know to the way media has been handled over the years? Yes, I think the post uh, 2010, when you had all these other means of communication, and you had these uh, what do you call the Snapchats, <clears throat> the Facebooks, and Twitter. the Twitter and the Instagrams, and all, they sort of affected the main news feed. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was an attack on the print media by those by the environmentalists who talked about trees being cut down. Yep. Technology came in, use less paper, don't spoil the environment. So people started reading paper online mm -hmm. and on the phone and their apps. And yep. So this was a turning point. But mainly after 2010, I think, the big impact on yeah. the yeah. digital paper, uh, yes. transformation. It was a lot harder, I think, back then to uh, to be in the industry because what you put out there, there's no going back from, huh? There's no delete button. You know, if any publication today to send a tweet or an article, they can remove it, you know, a second later. Yeah. But back then, uh, I, I would imagine, Yanni, you really need to be uh, on, on, on your toes with what you put out there because there's no going back from that. Do you remember, like, ever running a story where you later got in any trouble for or wished that you perhaps did not publish the story? Well, many times. Now, with the thing that you said that people say we, they delete it, then they can also, if not delete, they'll say by, we were hacked and somebody yeah. put it yeah. out. Yeah. And it has been done by people. Yeah. I know even some of the major sites who did put something in order to avoid any legal um, attacks on them. They said, we, we're sorry, yeah. but we didn't put this. But in the days of print, if you, it's printed and that's it. Well, there were many. There was a story about the wheat production that we had, and we said that the Saudi government has stopped buying wheat because the silos were full and they didn't want to um, buy more. The Financial Times, I think it was, ran a story that they stopped because there was no liquidity, and that caused a great problem. And it was my first uh, time to run afoul of the law, uh, as many others. And then there was another story that appeared while I was away about the assassination uh, fatwa against Mubarak and then I had to pay the price because I was asked to leave. Okay. So these were kind of, kind of stories that we had. But there were many others too yeah. where it was just you uh, were saved by the skin of your teeth. Mm -hmm. Definitely a lot more challenging to be in that kind of business back then in comparison yes. today. Yes. What would you say is your most favorite um, part of the job? I mean you were there for 30 years and you're still in the media business. What do you really enjoy about it? 
while coming in the morning sitting, it was not that we cut and paste as is nowadays in many of these, you know, other forms of media. We would come and sit, create a story. Remember, we were living also in the Arab world yeah. where the, the freedom ceiling, as they say, was not that high. Mm -hmm. But still, there were many areas that we could focus on. I focused on uh, women's rights. We focused on, because many of our readers, 70% were expatriates. So we were sort of focused on the plight of the expatriates, their problems, their issues. We also, Saudi Arabia was had gone through two booms while I was there in the mm -hmm. Arab news. So we focused on the increased economic enhancement. Yeah. We focused on so many other issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's actually a story that I, I didn't tell you um, uh, before we started this podcast that I'm going to tell you right now. I remember back in 1995 when I started school in England, there was an English teacher there and probably the best English teacher I've ever had. His name was David Alloway. David said, Mo, next time you go to Saudi, can you get me a newspaper of your local print? I'm like, absolutely, sure, I will. And this guy was so meticulous, like he would... You know, if the if if the letter is not on the line, I'm doing detention lines. Got him a paper, brought it back, and I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, he's gonna have his he's gonna have a preconception of Saudi based on this paper. He opens it, read through it in about five or ten minutes, and he looked up at me and he's like, I am very impressed with the level of English that is coming out of Saudi Arabia. I didn't think that there was even an English paper coming out of Saudi, let alone one done, you know, so correct uh, grammatically um, and um, flawlessly. Um, and this is coming from a guy who eventually made millions of pounds by selling detention papers to schools all over the UK. <laughs> he left our school two or three years later and he became famous for initiating uh, detention papers. And he was very fond of the Arab news newspaper. I went with the Gazette as well, which did not uh, raise any eyebrows of his. He was more impressed with the Arab news one. Well, the Arab news, in all honesty, not because I was there. It was founded by two legendary brothers. And it, the thing was that it, we catered to the needs of the people. We became a voice for the voiceless. Okay. We became a refuge for the expatriates. Not many people, as we mentioned before, knew English. So if there was any problem, they would just call us or come to us. So. Uh, it was more like an Aunt Abby agony column mm -hmm. rather than just being the editor. Yeah. At times, my staff would get upset. They said, this is not journalism. People come to you for the problem. And I said, what's the role of a newspaper is to sort of help our readers. Correct. And we had different types of readers, different nationalities. Yeah. And we went and stuck our neck out on so many issues. We yeah. challenged companies. We challenged employers. We got people out of jail, which was not basically our core uh, issue, yeah. uh, but we still did it. Yeah. Influence, yeah, strong influence on, uh, on on what's happening here on the ground. Um, since you're still in the media industry, um, you know it's uh, it's something very close to your heart. Are there any parts of the industry that you don't like? Uh, any negative um, areas? At the moment, or before? In, in general, like something that just uh, upsets you about uh, the media business. Well, I, I don't like the holier-than-thou writers, those who think that they are the people that people should follow, opinionated and other issues, and those who are not willing to listen to the other side. There are many columnists in that, and sometimes newspapers pick up the cudgel on, on behalf of certain issues which they think are is very near and dear to them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have to be fair, we have to be balanced, we have to look into the other sides, yeah. and we have to have empathy for the others. So this is lacking at times, especially these days where 
you become jingoistic. It's me against the other. And suddenly, if there's any criticism or critique of one's city or one's organization or of one's nation, you sort of just go out of control yeah, and yeah. attack the other side. Yeah. I, I, I could pick up on agendas from a mile away. Like it's so clear, especially with Western media. You know, um, you have one of the big ones clearly pushing one direction and the other one, you know, pushing another direction. Um, and I think it lacks realism today. You know, it's so dictated from above. And it's obvious for me, even for someone like me who knows nothing about the media industry. What would you change about the industry if you could change one thing? is to change or lessen the control of big business on the media okay. and of the authority in some areas on the media and, and to have less control so that you can allow people to sort of speak out their minds, focus on issues that are of paramount interest to the people. But at the same time, those in charge of the media also should be fair, balanced, yeah. and able to sort of sift through uh, right and wrong and come up with yeah. something that is of uh, helping the welfare of the people. I think we do a better job here than they do in the West in terms of less uh, influence from, you know, corporations and, and, and so forth. Yes. Like I, more real, I feel. Yes, like. I think, yes, in, in the West also, they become very opinionated. Yeah. And if they say or write something is different, difficult for you to, to sort of, you know, change their mindset. I remember there was an article in a paper in Texas attacking Saudi Arabia. It was totally false. If there was a segment of truth, I would have accepted it. I wrote 11 letters to the editor. None of them were published. Agenda driven. Yes. Yeah. What's one of the more memorable stories or one of your favorite stories that you can recall? Well, my favorite stories were the, the Kuwait, invasion of Kuwait. That was a story with the Arab news. We were there. On the 8th of August, it happened on the 2nd, on the 8th we were there, but uh, through a lot of trauma in the sense that August the 2nd invasion, and then there was a small directive that don't write about it. And I was almost pleading, how can you not write? And CNN was there, CNN had just started. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things. Other stories that we covered were the, the, the great rape case in the, in the eastern province, uh, we, we really pushed through to see that the perpetrators were taken to task. They were from before, but we wanted people to know about it because the Western press was writing all uh, nonsensical things. I am for freedom of the press, but CNN and others were coming and giving a totally distorted version of what happened. I'm Khalid, I would imagine that you have met some, uh, some very influential people over the time. Is there someone that's jumps off the page, someone that you really, really enjoyed meeting, looking back? Well, I met uh, Mr. Mandela and we had a long talk and Mandela was somebody who accepted the fact that he had committed many mistakes. And Mandela said he was happy that he was released after communism died. And he said the reason is because he felt that when he comes out, the first thing he would do is to nationalize all the white-owned businesses. But communism had died, then he realized that if he does that, South Africa will go broke because they owned all the companies and the African natives were not in a position to manage these businesses. Yeah. So he had that famous truth and reconciliation program where there was, um, he showed a lot of openness to his, to the people who, yeah. the detractors who put him in jail. Yeah. 
Um, do you frequent South Africa? You mentioned something about going recently. Is it a country you go to often? My trainer can't stop talking about how difficult things are, how difficult times are for, for the people of South Africa. I feel like it was run better when Mandela was around as opposed to what's happening there today, which you know, is, is chaos as he describes it. Liberation movements don't always make good governments. The problem with Africa was that a lot of these liberation movements when colonialism died, mm -hmm. they took over as governors mm -hmm. and government and all, and they couldn't manage. I truly believe that, you know, people who know how to manage should be put in place. Yeah. Once these revolutionary wars are over, I think revolutionaries should go back to their homes mm -hmm. rather than become presidents for life. And, yeah. do. and this is a problem with yeah. Africa. You look at how Rwanda turned it around. I mean, only in the genocide was in 93 or 94. Yes, yes. And now it's um, it's an emerging market. You yes. know, it's prosperous, it's yes. safe. It's uh, it's really on its way up. And uh, it's just a beautiful story how they turned a it around. Africa has so much potential and so many people, you know, the idea that we think of the Af Africans as backwards is nonsense. There's so much culture. You go to the Senegal, you go to Ghana, Mali, Mauritania, Timbuktu. Mm. The great places. Have you visited? Have you been there? No, I haven't been to, to, to Timbuktu. In Africa, I've been to Somalia, to yeah. Sudan, South Africa. Yeah. Yes. It's nature there. People yes. go there just for, you know, the safaris. And there's yes. just so much to see there. Um, with uh, everything that's been happening here uh, in Saudi the last couple of years, did you ever imagine that you'd see the changes that you've seen in such a short time? Did you think that that day would come where... You know the reforms and uh, and the and the women empowerment and uh, you know you know a lot more freedom than 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 ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. Did you think you'd see that? Well, the changes were very fast and mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. Yes, the changes didn't come suddenly. Let's also give credit to those who were there before us. Correct. I mean, like for example, the education for women has been there for more than sixty years. Mm -hmm. uh, doctors, nurses, to a certain extent, teachers, scientists, they were there media personalities, but you're right. There was a stage where there was a kind of slowdown when you had these religious extremists. And I don't call them religious because it has nothing to do with extremists, let's say, of, or ideologues try to impose their will on people and arrest the development of society. Yeah. So societal expectations were not high. Mm -hmm. But in all honesty, what has happened in the last three years is something that one is slowly beginning to realize. It's like you've woken up from a, a lethargic dream. And dreams can also be lethargic. You just wake up like that oh, yeah. and things are happening. And I mean, the upshear thing, women going out. I remember my wife went to, to the courthouse with her father for some you know, settlement of some land, things they had to finish. And the judge told her, please face the wall. Oh, my, so that has changed. And, and I... I'm sort of uh, not being, uh, I'm not exaggerating, but you, you're right. Things have really yeah. changed. I have never seen the amount of young people buzzing around like they are doing now. Yeah. And it's very strange. You go to places, kids, uh, young people are heading multi-million dollar organizations, yeah. ministries, deputy ministers, ambassadors and all, and qualified, yeah. you see. This is very important. There's a buzz in the air. There's a lot of excitement yes. in the but air. But it has a flip side to it. And the, one of the things I would like to advise young people is also not to sort of get carried away. You know, I still would also advise in many ways corporations and even those in authority that you should, you know, marry the old with the young yeah. in the sense that have a few mentors 
who could mentor some of these people because, you know, it's very important for you not to get carried Absolutely. away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, education. Um, are you of the belief that the landscape is on the verge of changing? I'll tell you why I say that. Because people with a smartphone and access to internet can learn anything they want today. I learned everything I needed to know about entering the industry of podcasting uh, via the internet. We didn't have the internet 15 years ago. At least not people in third world countries had internet uh, 10 or 15 years ago. But do you think with the access to the internet and the smartphone, the educational landscape can change going forward? I think it's already done that. Remember, the, uh, if you notice the past few months, the COVID months, people are now going to distance learning. Mm -hmm. People already are searching the net. If I want to find something, I go through the net. Yeah. Uh, when I joined Arab News until 2000, one would not. But right now we are looking at new features. People are learning more about COVID from the net. From the net yeah. People, the those who are diabetic are learning how to uh, be treated through. So I think the internet, yes, yeah. uh, the knowledge, it has two ways. One, of course, the, the logical, natural flow of education. But at the same time, the internet is also filled with horror stories, that you is, know, yeah. how to kill yourself. Yeah. You know? So these kind of issues, yeah. one should Good be very careful. Bad. Yes. Do you think it's um, endangering any professions or careers? Because I heard of a profession that is endangered. Lawyers. Lawyers. Mm -hmm. In America, uh, legal secretaries, a lot of them through artificial intelligence might, might lose their jobs. And this I heard about four years ago when I was giving a lecture at the University of Central Florida. And you're right that uh, even it also, you go to distance help. Mm -hmm. For example, I mean, why would you employ a full-time translator? Uh, my translator lives in Canada. My rewrite man or the editor would be in India or Australia. So these are the issues, yes. Yeah. And people would then work more from home. Yeah. If they get a chance to do that, they can... You know, people could outsource these things. Yes, mm -hmm. so many professions are going to be affected by this. Yeah. I've been, I've, I've heard it actually uh, on another podcast, someone saying that Corona or COVID nineteen only accelerated the future. It brought what was going to be here yes. in five, ten, fifteen years yes. now. Yes, and just imagine how much time is in people's pockets now that would be spent on commute. Now people are at home. They, you know, I think the average com the average global commute is forty five minutes. That's an hour and a half in the in your pocket to learn something, you know, to do something. I think working from home or studying from home, I, I feel that it's just going to get more popular. Now, apart from the learning, also it, it it sort of you avoid heartaches and you avoid, you know, this crazy um, driving, as you said, commuting. You avoid many things. Like here, I wanted a passport. I just filled the up here. They told me to come in three days. In the old days, you have to have Maagib, you go yourself, you stamp it, and all five, six days, they will lose your passport. Yeah. I just got it in three days. Yeah, it's become so much easier. Yes. <clears throat> would you say, Amkharid, that you have accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish when you were younger? I don't think so. I think we should. Uh, I am one of those people who subscribe to the view that. You, you, you are there till the last day. There are many things I would like to do. I would like to mentor young people. I wish I could have a program where I would take people on journeys across, take them to countries, talk to them about it. I would like to mentor people in sports. Although I'm not a sportsman mm -hmm. uh, now. I'm playing. You like your cricket, cricket and tennis. But you know, I would really like to have a Saudi cricket team. Yeah. Yes. 
think uh, you, I see people playing cricket around the yes. town. I mean, yeah. uh, mainly expatriates, but before we used to have your uncles used to play at the late Muhammad Al-Fuzan, Bin Zagars, yeah. quite a few Saudi families in Jeddah yeah. used to play cricket. Enough to field the team. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, we had it was Saudi 11. Yeah. Um, you're still going to the office every day. You very graciously invited me to your office. We had a chat a few months ago. And um, I'm just wondering, like, is retirement ever in your plans? Uh, and forgive me for asking such a personal question, but uh, have you thought about retirement? No, I. Uh, you see, retirement, if you retire, you retire from life. I mean, I don't want to just sit and pot around in the house. I like to do things. And if in any way I can enhance the quality of life around me of someone or help people, uh, that I think would be a great uh, gift from God to me and from me to then to other people. I read a book which was given to me by my good friend uh, Amr Khashoggi. It's called Rewired. So we are not retired, we are rewired and we do other things. I am now with uh, Al-Abir Medical Group. I advise them, I'm director there, and I discovered a whole new area, the medical field. And now people used to phone me about media, now they talk to me about the medical situation here in the medical industry. So yeah. one does. Of course, you have to be very careful that also you should, at the same time, while going around doing your own thing, you should neglect, not neglect the family. This Correct. is very important. Number one. Yes. Uh, we lived in a house with five, six uncles and cousins and all. And then, of course, now you have the nucleus family. It's also very important to you know, focus on your children, be a mentor to them, be a guide, uh, and do other things. So while I like to go around, I, think, I don't think so. I like to retire. I mean, you would be doing a few things, not necessarily work to make money, mm -hmm. but do something. Because I believe in this world, there are two types of people, the one who live and die, and we all have to go away, and the other, is that when we go away, people will remember us for the uh, quality of life we enhanced and for whom we did and for what we did for Absolutely. others. The legacy you leave behind. Yes. Um, what advice, Ham Khalid, do you uh, have for someone entering the media business uh, in 2021? A youngster entering the field. Um, do you have any words for, for such a person? First of all, see to it that you have total command of the, uh, of the language, Arabic or English, whichever media section you choose. Number one, knowledge, be well-read. Without being well-read and without having acquired knowledge and, and not be specialized, you cannot write about everything. Before a writer would write about anything. If you want to focus on the energy business, you better be fully, and not an expert, but fully aware of what's going on. So. For young people, I think the idea is to focus on the type of reporting they would like. Yeah. Now, there aren't any papers like before, so even if you're an editor, you have to encompass everything that's coming in. Yeah. At the same time, if you want to lead an organization, then you also have to be a good manager. Yeah. But for just entering the media business, I think you, you have to be well-read. Yeah, absolutely. And truthful to yourself. Exactly. Well, I'm Khalid. Thank you so much for taking time and coming on the show today. And I just want to extend an extra appreciation for you reaching out to me uh, upon hearing. I think it was episode six, uh, uh, Asya Khashoggi's episode. You, you know, you reached out to me. You called me. You 
you you gave me so much encouragement um, uh, that that did to me more than you know, honestly. Um, and and I'll never forget that because it, it really boosted me, it lifted my self-esteem, and it made me believe in what I'm doing. And coming from you, it's something that I will never ever forget. And I appreciate you calling me into your office and the you know the two hours that I kept you from your busy day and having a conversation. I really appreciate all the support you've given me, um, and I will remember it for life. So. Thank well, you. you don't have to thank me. I mean, it's uh, I'm a relay runner. I passed the baton to somebody else, and I had great teachers. Uh, some of them are no more. And I had great relatives and grand uncles and uncles who taught me something. And I r truly believe that I'm in a position to, to sort of pass this on, and I'll still keep on doing it. So if you have other people wanting to have a, s a chat, I can assure you, I won't bore them. <laughs> Not at all. It's such an honor for you to say those words to me, honestly. Thank you. Like, it, it keeps me going. Thank you. Um, and again, like, thank you for, for coming into the studio um, and sharing, you know, so many amazing stories. Is there anything you, you, you want to end on? Any, um, you know, uh, advice or quotes or anything you want to close with before uh, we, we let you go? I think two things we should have, all of us as human beings and I think humility and empathy is a very important issue. And I think I notice a lot of young people, you know, strut around like peacocks because for whatever reason, their wealth or position or power, I think they should, you know, sort of be comfortable in, in their own skins and remember that this is a world, it's, a, it's just a passing phase from one darkness that before we're born, another darkness when we go away. Yeah. And therefore we should have empathy, compassion, uh, for our fellow human being. Absolutely. And that's what our ideology and religion teaches us. Amazing. Amazing words. Really well put. Thank you so much again, Abkhalid, for sharing thank your wisdom and knowledge and stories. Absolute honor to have you on the show. And uh, thank you for being a believer and a supporter of the show. Thank you. It really was my pleasure. And pleasure is all mine, Abkhalid. Thank, thank you so you. much. Bye-bye.